Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 through 19, page 982 in the Pew Bible. I'm uh, playing a bit injured today, so you're going to have to bear with my voice. I apologize that I sound ridiculous and nasally. Uh, my sinuses decided to make everything into one giant block of cement in my face. Um, so, not feeling well. Uh, pray for my voice. Um, God's Word is where the power comes from. Um, so, uh, let's, let's trust in that this morning. Uh, I was asked to bring you greetings from Dundee, Scotland, and Lockheed Baptist Chapel, a church plant that we support. Melissa and I had the privilege of being invited to join them last week for their annual church retreat up in the Scottish Highlands. Uh, a beautiful place with wonderful people who really love the preaching of God's Word, um, and they're, man, they're thankful to have it taught to them. They had to listen to me five times over the course of 36 hours, so be thankful that you only have to listen to me once a week. That's a lot of times to listen to one person. Uh, but Andrew, their pastor, asked for me to express their thanks to you guys for allowing us to be there and for our continual support for the church plant that they're doing. Uh, really good work in one of the poorest, uh, most gospelless areas in Europe. Um, so he's going to be here with us in April, actually, so I'm excited that you'll get to see him and hear from him. I realize it's faded now, but for about a week I was thinking in Scottish and an accent. Like everything I thought that I was working through was in this great, he has the very Shrek-like accent. Um, so I'm excited that you'll get to hear him in April. Um, but it's helpful, it's encouraging to be reminded uh, that God's at work everywhere, right? that across the Atlantic, in a different country, in a very different culture, we could have wonderful, intimate fellowship with others who love our same Jesus. It's, it's so easy just to get caught up in what's happening right here, uh, right now, and just forget about how much God is doing elsewhere and forget how much of a privilege it is to be a part of what God is doing elsewhere. That's what I love about this church, how much of our money we give uh, to support missions, uh, the privilege that it is for us to be partners in, to share in what God is doing across the world as his gospel advances. And in the passage that we have before us this morning, Paul actually reminds us of that very thing. We are coming to the end of our study of Philippians and no, not today. I lied to you two weeks ago. Uh, next week, next week will actually be our last sermon in the book. Then I'll do something for Christmas Sunday. Uh, we then have the privilege of having Joanna's brother, Jesse Rose, another one of our missionaries, missionaries in Japan, who will be with us on the 29th. And then we'll be ready to dive back into Genesis chapter 12 on the first Sunday of the new year. So that's kind of our next month ahead. Uh, but if you individually support any missionaries, and I hope that you do, you probably regularly receive their update letters. Uh, Jesse just sent one out this week. He updated on the upcoming travel plans in the States. He shared prayer requests and uh, shared for how we could pray for the gospel to advance in Japan. And then he expressed his thanks for our continued support. Remember, that's exactly what Paul is doing in the letter uh, to the Philippians, except that Paul has the advantage over Jesse of being directly inspired by the Holy Spirit. Right? So these are spirit-inspired missionary thank you letters. So he gives thanks to the Philippians, and at the same time, he's also giving to them and to us God's word. And those two things especially come together in our passage this morning as he both thanks them and in so doing also instructs and encourages the Philippians and us as well. He's thanking them for their financial gift, but more importantly, he's teaching them about the goodness of giving and generosity. And so as he expresses his thanks to them, he is at the same time encouraging us to go and do likewise. Uh, he, <clears throat> he's teaching us about the goodness of giving and generosity. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Remember, we talked two weeks ago about contentment, about finding satisfaction in this life and in God's providence and sovereignty and where he has us. Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, contentment. And I want to focus again on the corporate nature of contentment. In this letter, remember, that is all about joy. We keep coming back to the fact that joy is not found in circumstances. Joy is not found in self, but that joy we know is ultimately found only in Jesus Christ. But that we find that joy in Jesus Christ in large part by focusing on the people of Jesus Christ. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Count others more significant 
than yourselves. That's what's going on in our passage. As we see the Philippians do that for Paul, and then Paul is going to do that for the Philippians. But this time, we're going to look at it in distinctly financial terms. We're going to talk about giving. We're going to talk about money. Money. And this goes perfectly with VJ's sermon from last week. We didn't plan this. It just worked out. Um, but we, we just don't talk enough about money. The Bible talks a lot about money because money matters. You handle money Every day, you use it constantly. Your life, to some degree, revolves around money. You can't live without it. And quite often, your mood, or in the terms of Philippians, your joy depends a lot on whether you think you have enough of it or not. So in this book on joy, we haven't yet discussed the relationship between joy and money. I want to do that this morning. You often hear the phrase that money can't buy happiness. I'm actually going to disagree I want to make the case from the book of Philippians that money can buy joy. Now, maybe not in the way that you think. Don't freak out. Uh, preaching heresy. Uh, we're going to see how this works. I'll explain uh, what I mean. So we're looking at the role of money in our pursuit of joy, and we're going to do so uh, more specifically in terms of giving. Here's the main idea. Giving advances God's glory and your own good. Giving advances God's glory and your own good. Here we have before us joy through the sacrificial service of others with our money. It's Christmas season. I'm not a complete Grinch. I'm almost a complete Grinch, but not quite. So I worked a theme, a Christmas theme into our title. You're welcome. But it comes straight from the text. Giving gifts. We're going to have five points that we're going to see from this text. VJ pulled off six last week, so I can do five. Why do we give? Number one, because it is kind to share in troubles. All right, well, how do we do that? Number two, we share in troubles by giving. Number three, we give not for our own interest, but the interest of others. Number four, we give as an offering to God himself. And number five, we give knowing that God will provide. That's, that's our goal. What's the relationship between joy and money? How can money actually buy joy? It's giving that we're going to see. So let's read the passage. Uh, we'll see what Paul says, and then we'll begin to walk through it. We're going to actually do Philippians 4, not, uh, 14, verse 19. We're going to stop in kind of a strange spot, but I wanted to save verse 20 uh, for the end, because I think it'll connect well to what we're going to do in the final sermon. So Philippians 4, 14 through 19, um, this is what God wants to say to you today. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Let's stop there and let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that it's living and active. We thank you that you speak through it. You save through it. You change and shape through it. We thank you that it is powerful. Because, Lord, I feel very weak right now. I pray that you would be very strong in my weakness. I pray that you would sustain my voice. I pray that you would uh, prevent it from being a hindrance uh, to your word. Father, speak powerfully uh, to us. Father, show us Jesus Christ. Father, show us uh, how the very practical thing of our money and, and what we do with it and how that connects to the gospel and how that relates uh, to our joy. Father, we so want to love Jesus that he affects everything about our lives, including how we use our money. Father, help us now. Uh, through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so talking about the relationship between money and joy. Again, I'm pro provocatively, intentionally trying to get your attention by making the case that money can buy joy. There's a direct relationship between your money and your joy. How? Well, we have to start off first by establishing the goodness of giving with point number one. It is kind 
to share in troubles. And that's straight out of verse 14. It was kind of you, Paul writes, to share my trouble. So let's briefly review our context. Remember, Paul is in prison in Rome. Rome is very far away. We're Italy versus Greece, very far away from Philippi, which is the location of the church to which he is writing. And it's a church that Paul himself has started 10 years earlier, a church that he has great affection for and a church that has great affection for him. And that church has demonstrated that affection through provision. Paul has needs. Paul is in prison. He cannot work. Yet, in prison back then, you were still responsible for providing your own food and your clothing. Well, that's difficult when you're in prison. So that makes Paul dependent completely on others. And so the Philippians over here have heard about Paul's troubles and they have Active. They have sent Epaphroditus to take the long and dangerous journey. Epaphroditus, we've seen, almost died, but he came with a gift to minister to Paul. But that's actually not how Paul first puts it. He doesn't talk about gift. He will talk about gift. He'll use the word twice in verses 17 and 18. But in verse 14, he first calls what they have done a sharing in his troubles. The King James says, ye did communicate with my affliction. Not communicate as we use the word today, meaning to transmit information, but communicate more like commune. And this is a very important word in scripture. We mentioned it in the very first sermon in this book, and it is that word koinonia. Uh, The basic idea behind the word koinonia is that of something that is common or shared. So when you share something in common with others, that thing unites you. It binds you together. So koinonia can mean partnership, but it's generally a more relationally intimate term, meaning fellowship or participation or communion. It means to share intimately in something. John uses this word a lot in 1 John chapter 1. Turn there if you'd like. For a second, Uh, page 1021, 1 John chapter 1. I want us to understand the significance of this word. There's going to be lots of water breaks today. I use the scripture reading turning times to take drinks of water. That's an old pastor trick. All right, four times John uses this same word, koinonia, in 1 John 1. In the ESV, if that's what you have, every time you see the word fellowship, it's the word koinonia. John starts off this letter by saying that he has proclaimed what he has seen, Christ. Why is he proclaiming Christ? Verse 3, that, here's the reason, here's the preaching, here's why Christ, that you may have fellowship with us, communion with us. Horizontal, one another communion. And he goes on. And indeed, our fellowship, communion, same word, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So vertical communion with God himself. To be a Christian, we've seen, remember, is to be in Christ. It is to share in him, to participate in him, which always results in a sharing and a participation in the people of Christ. Same thing in verse 6. Look down to verse 6. John goes on. If we say we have fellowship, communion with him, vertical again, yet we walk in darkness, we lie. So he's saying communion in Christ leads to holiness in life. Well, what else does it lead to? Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship, we have communion with one another. Again, vertical communion with Christ results in horizontal communion with the people of Christ. Communion with Christ always demonstrates itself in communion with the people of Christ. Participation in Christ always demonstrates itself in participation with the people of Christ, which means perfect timing. Mike just prayed for it. Membership class this afternoon. Guys, listen, you need to be a member of a church. If it's not this church, it needs to be some church, uh, some Christ-centered, gospel-preaching church. Uh, Mark Dever, pastor in D.C., uh, likes to provocatively say, if you are not a member of a church, well, how can I be expected to believe that you are a Christian? You know, he, he's being intentionally 
provocative, right? He's trying to get your attention. He's trying to get you to pay attention. No, he's not saying that being a member of a church saves you. He knows that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Membership does not save us. But what Dever, and he's just the church membership guy, what he absolutely is saying is that church membership is an important evidence of salvation. He provocatively keeps going out. If you refuse to join a church, you should at least be asking yourself, why, why is that? Again, just to be clear, because somebody's probably upset, you can be a Christian and not be a member of a church. But why? Right? Well, why would you want to be? Uh, church membership matters. Uh, church membership is biblical. I don't have time to take the whole sermon to lay that case out. I'm going to do that at 1 o'clock upstairs. So if you want me to lay out for you why church membership is such a biblical thing and a good thing, well, then I'm going to invite you to stay and come to the membership class. God gives the keys of the kingdom to the church. We get so confused about that. What, what does that mean? Oh, it's pretty simple, right? Keys open and shut. Keys are about authority. Keys are about access. God is giving to the church the power and the right to declare who is in and who is out, right? That's what keys do. I have keys to my house and you don't. VJ does, but that's a different thing. Um, but I have keys and, and you don't, right? I get to go in and you don't. It's my house. So what the church is doing in part when you become a member, it is declaring um, that to the best of it, its ability, uh, it discerns and believes that your Christian confession is true. It's affirming and confirming your profession of faith. Because remember, we're really trying to emphasize that the grace of God that saves us also changes us. Right? Your works, James 2 says, your changed life gives evidence of your salvation. There are just a whole lot of people out there that profess Christ, but look nothing like Christ. And we've seen Paul throughout this letter, like in chapter 2, verse 12, say, work out your own salvation, live it out, give evidence of it, live in correspondence with what God has done for you. 2 Peter 1.10 tells us to make our calling and election sure. How? Listen, I'm going to make the case that we do it in large part by joining a church. Because you need help. I need help. You need pastors over you. Uh, our hiring of Mike, I'm just going to be clear, I was entirely selfishly motivated. Right? I needed a pastor. I needed someone who could pastor and shepherd me as well. So thank you for hiring someone who could help me. Right? Because all of us need this. You need brothers and sisters in Christ surrounding you and encouraging you and helping you. Because guys, listen, the Christian life is hard. Don't try to do it alone because you can't. You need others. You need the church. You need to be a member of a church. It's just church just has to be about so much more than attendance. It is that, but it's more. We're seeing here that it's, it's koinonia. It's fellowship. It's family. It's a sharing of everything. That cannot and does not happen as a church attender. You need to covenantally unite yourself to a body of believers. And if you have questions, come to the class and I'll lay out why it's biblical and why it's so good. Um, but church is koinonia. It's sharing. All my stuff, it's my kids. They get it. It's all theirs. And so they just take it happily because they know that they're part of my family and what's mine is theirs. That's what it's supposed to be like in the church as we share and love and encourage and support one another. And we know who that is by those who God has specifically brought together to us to unite us together in the covenant of church membership. Church is koinonia. Back to the text. No tangent there. All right, right. <clears throat> a sharing in what? Because look at what he says, by the way. A sharing in trouble or affliction, uh, the King James says. That's, that's beautiful. You know, if you're unsure about this church membership thing, don't be, because this is what it's about. This is why we care about this. This is what we want for you. Life is full of trouble. And you know what I think about the gift of prophecy? No more. But I can confidently say this. Trouble is coming. If you don't have it right now, it's coming at some point for you. It just is. That's how life works. Paul experienced great trouble. And the Philippians entered into that trouble. They partnered in it with him. They fellowshiped in his troubles. They willingly shared it. We're happy to share in good things, aren't we? 
Oh, yes, choir, I will happily share with your fellowship meal after choir practice. Thank you for feeding me. Right? We love sharing in good things. Right? That's, that's easy. But this is trouble. They're sharing willingly, joyfully, and freely in trouble. And this is what Christians do for one another. They enter into one another's troubles. They fellowship in them. They, Galatians 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens. You have burdens. Why in the world would you want to carry those burdens by yourself? That's what church is about. Covenantally uniting together, committing to one another, becoming part of the same body. Think of the, the metaphors that, that Paul uses for the church. Uh, body, uh, temple, uh, family. All of those things assume uh, the idea of church membership. We're saying, I am yours and you are mine. I am binding pledging, promising myself to you, to love you, to help you, to encourage you, to carry you, to share in your trouble. And what a beautiful thing that is. And that's literally what Paul says. The ESV says it is kind to share in troubles. Uh, the Greek word is literally beautiful, kalos. It's, it's attractively good. It says this is a good and beautiful thing, to share in one another's Burdens. This is what love is and what do love does as it actively seeks the good of the other. So it is kind to share in troubles. And that's what we do together as we unite together in a church. That's just the first point. We're never going to get anywhere. Let's, let's keep moving. How do we do this? Number two, we share in troubles by giving. Uh, verse 15, uh, we know from Acts 16 that Paul was not in Philippi for very long. After that, he leaves. He heads southwest further into Greece, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens. So he's continuing on in his second missionary journey. Missionary journeys cost money. Look at verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And there's our word again, partnership. That's, that's koinonia. So from the very beginning, 10 years ago, the Philippians had taken a very active and practical interest in Paul's work. They share his work. They enter into communion with him in the work of the gospel. And they did it in giving and receiving. Paul has needs. They meet those needs. Verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. All right, so this gift that Paul has just received from the Philippians that he's writing this letter about was not the first time they've done this. This was not a one-time thing. They once and again, he says, repeatedly had given sacrificially to help Paul. He has needs. They help by giving to meet those needs. That's how they share in Paul's troubles. They give. They give money. And this shouldn't be particularly profound, but Christians give money. And guys, money really does matter. And I know that all kinds of alarms start going off sometimes when pastors talk about money. I do understand that because so many have abused this. Hey guys, you need to give more money because I need a new jet. Um, that's, an actual, that's an actual thing uh, that uh, Preflo Dollar has said. Uh, don't listen to someone whose last name is Dollar. Uh, that's a bad idea. Uh, so again, obviously that's ridiculous and wrong. Uh, but the solution to the abuse of pastors preaching on money is not for pastors to never preach on money. Maybe part of the solution is for pastors to first do what Paul has done in verse 11. Remember what he's done back in verse 11. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need. Remember, he, he has said, hey, thank you for the gift. But just to be clear... I don't need your money. So, church, just to be clear, I don't need your money. Uh, the church has been very generous and gracious to me and my family. We are well looked after and taken care of. And the church is well looked after and taken care of. Listen, honestly, the church does not need you to give. You need you to give. Paul makes it very clear here that he is not after the Philippians' money. And I can honestly say that we as a church are not after your money. God has been very generous uh, to us. And we're going to see in the next point that Paul's main concern is not their money, but it's them. He's not after their wallets. He's after their hearts. But Paul understands, following Jesus, that our wallets are directly connected to our hearts. 
Wallets reveal hearts. We all know Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we often teach that your, your wallet or your checking account, how you spend your money, reveals what you love and what you live for. It reveals ultimately what you worship, right? You could pull up my account online and you could see that I love my family. Uh, those five ladies basically get all of my money, right? It's, it's theirs. Uh, you can see that I love my church. A good portion of my income goes to that, as well as a couple of missionaries that we individually support. I want that percentage to be more. We're trying, we're working on that. And then the tiny little bit that's left over for me basically goes to books, food, and a cable bill so I can watch the Tar Heels. That's a fairly accurate summary of who I am and what I care about based upon how I spend my money. Family, church, books, food, Tar Heels. That's me. That's, that's pretty accurate. That's all just from my wallet. Wallets reveal hearts. How do you spend your money? Again, that's an importantly true fact, but that's not exactly what Jesus is saying in that verse. He doesn't say where your heart is, there your treasure will be. He says where your treasure is, there your heart will be. In other words, what he's saying is that money doesn't just reveal hearts. Money directs and leads hearts. Money shapes hearts. Our hearts follow our money, which makes giving even more important. Your money is not just showing, it's shaping. Every time you use your money, it's shaping your heart and your life and your loves. How you use your money affects your heart. Listen to the two, to the two verses that come before that verse. Uh, Luke six, uh, Matthew 6, 19 through 20. Jesus has said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. I'm actually, I was thinking about it. I've never heard that verse uh, properly taught in the context of Matthew 6. I've never heard it taught that that verse comes right after Jesus has just taught his disciples to pray that God's kingdom would come in verse 10. And then right after this, Jesus teaches them to seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness in verse 33. So these verses about the money in your heart following it are sandwiched right there in the middle are then one of the primary ways that we seek God's kingdom and that God's kingdom comes. It's by laying up our treasure in heaven. It's by the giving of the people of God. And so Jesus is saying, give in support and pursuit of that kingdom and watch your heart follow. You will love and you will care about what you spend your money on. Because to be honest, I always read uh, the missionary update letters of the missionaries I personally support. I'm not as good about reading the ones that I don't personally support. Because I care about where my money's going. Right? I want to know uh, what they're doing. I care about, uh, we do church business meetings, and I love our church business meetings. And you get all the finances clearly, my salary, Mike's, and v, you see everything. We take a long time to do that. Listen, I want to know that stuff because I'm giving my money to the church. And so I care about the church. And so I care about how the church uses its money. Wherever you're pouring your money, you're going to care more about that thing. So use your money to seek God's kingdom. And again, if that's if you just this feels too self-serving and you just can't trust it, you have to find somewhere to do that. You have to find some way for your own heart to be giving in pursuit of God's kingdom. Give. And I don't think there's any way to overemphasize how fundamental this is to the Christian life. And surely we know that you cannot, cannot actually be a Christian without ever praying, and you cannot actually be a Christian without ever fellowshipping with the people of God and engaging in corporate worship. Equally so, you cannot actually be a Christian without ever giving. This is part and parcel. This is fundamental to the Christian life. Keep in mind the basic principle behind the most famous verse in the Bible. God so loved that he gave. Right? Our God is the God who gives. And who gives us everything, ultimately. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. 
So one of the main things that characterizes our God is his lavish generosity. And we saw that when we looked at God's creation in Genesis 1. He doesn't just create. He creates beauty and variety and abundance. He blesses the first couple with everything that they could ever want or need. But we know that ultimately what he blesses them with is himself. Now we've seen the story. We separated ourselves from that, from him, with our sin. Sin is a rejection of God. The the wages of sin is death. Sin separates man from God. But then right away in Genesis 3.15, we saw God continue to demonstrate his lavish generosity by promising that he was going to do something about our sin himself, by coming himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, right? He gave Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to come as a man, to live and die as a man in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. Listen, that's the gospel. There should be no confusion about what the gospel is. It is not what you have done. It is not your response. It's not what you're living. It is what God has done objectively in the person of Jesus Christ to save his people from their sins. And at the very heart of this gospel is a self-sacrificial act of giving. Right? The gospel is that God himself shared in our troubles by giving his son. So that as we then follow him, as we do what he does, we love because he first loved us. We give because he first gave to us. Christians give. It's just that simple. We share in one another's burdens by giving to the church and to one another. And yes, that involves many things, time and attention and presence and and prayer, but it also includes money. This is what the Philippians had done for Paul. They shared in his troubles by very practically and tangibly meeting his needs with the gift of money. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to give. It's because I love you that I'm telling you that you need to give. Money is good. Work hard for it. Earn it. Save it. But then also Give it, because Jesus is clear that money is also dangerous. Uh, The love of money is dangerous. And we've got to know that as relatively wealthy Westerners in the most affluent culture in history, we particularly need to be wary of the danger of the love of money. That's why in the same chapter, Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or, or money. Jesus basically personifies or deifies money there, treating it as a, as a false god that, that competes for our worship and our allegiance. He says, listen, you can't love both. It's either God or money. So the love of money can be very dangerous. How do you combat the risk of a love of money? You give it away. And you watch your heart follow. Give, he says. Generosity is good for us. But that's not the primary reason that we give. Point number three. Give not for your own interest, but the interests of others. Look at verse 17. Paul says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. This, is the, this verse is what explains verse 11. Remember, some people just hate verse 11. They think Paul's being a real jerk. Uh, hey, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Hey, thanks, guys, but, but no thanks. That was nice of you, but I didn't really need your help, so no big deal. No, that's not what Paul is doing. And verse 17 makes that clear. Paul is not ungrateful. He's counting others more significant than himself and looking not to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Paul is again doing the very thing that he has called to the Philippians to do back in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul is, of course, thankful and happy that his needs have been met. But that's not actually his main concern. What Paul is so excited about is not what their gift does for him, but what it does for them. Right? The money is great, but it's really only fruit. It is evidence of something far greater because remember, their money has now revealed their heart. 
It reveals that they themselves have learned what he has learned in chapter 3, verse 8, that they count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. It reveals, as he prayed in one nine, that their love is abounding more and more so that they may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. He delights in the money because the money reveals that they are delighting in Christ. And that's the only thing Paul cares about. Remember, were it up to Paul, he would choose to die. We think that sounds morbid. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, doesn't seem to think so. Remember 1.23, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ. Being with Christ is the best thing. Death gets Paul to Christ, so Paul desires death. But he ends up choosing the opposite. Why? He tells us, 125, for your progress and joy in the faith. You see what Paul is saying there? He's saying, if my staying here helps you, if my being absent from Christ helps you progress and find joy in Christ, well, then I choose that. I will give up the best thing for a time if it helps you get the best thing. Right? Paul is entirely other focused because the Christian life is entirely other focused. He knows that he's no longer his own because he has been bought with a price. He knows that he no longer lives for the purpose of pursuing himself and what he desires. He is so caught up and consumed with the other focused love of Christ that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That two, remember two, five through 11 is the heart of the letter. We'll come back to it next week. That though Jesus was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? For others. For us. He died that we could live. Paul wants to be like that. Just like the Jesus he loves more than anything else. He delights in their gift because it reveals that they're getting it. Their willingness to sacrificially give to him reveals that they had experienced the sacrificial giving of God. And so, yes, we give because it's good for us. We will benefit much from giving, but that's not our aim and our focus. We give because we have first received infinitely more than we could ever give away. We give because we realize that one of the main ways we love and serve and worship and follow our God is by seeking the good of the people of our God. And so giving becomes one of the main ways that we fulfill one of the main commands of this letter. Christians put the interests of others before their own. Christians count others more significant than themselves. Why? Because that's what God has done first for us. So give to serve the interests of others. Give to bless and benefit others. Number four, these last two will be brief. Give not only because it benefits others, give as an offering to God. Look at verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So there is the, the second use of the word gift, a gift from the Philippians to Paul. But notice who Paul says the gift is ultimately to. It's also a fragrant offering and sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That's what our giving ultimately is. It's an offering to God. And this is pretty cool. Our giving actually pleases God. And it's not just pleasing. In the Greek, uh, Paul takes the prefix for good. Uh, a eulogy is a good uh, word. He takes that you prefix and he shoves it on the front of the word pleasing. And so the King James literally says this gift is well pleasing to God. And so, yes, Paul's needs have been met, but this giving ultimately serves a much higher purpose than that. Our giving is ultimately an act of worship. And Paul intentionally takes Old Testament sacrificial imagery and applies it to our financial giving. 
We saw earlier in the year in January, we were in Genesis 8 when Noah offers up a sacrifice after God rescues him from the flood. And it says that God smells the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice. Now, that sounds a little strange uh, to us today. But we've got to understand the, the, the nature of the, the descriptive symbolic language. Uh, we talked about this Wednesday night. When Job is concerned that he cannot find God. Why not? Well, in part, it's because God is a spirit. You can't see a spirit. Spirits also don't have noses. God is not literally up above somewhere smelling the smoke from the burnt offering and enjoying it as you guys do when you stumble tired into church, greedily smelling the aroma of VJ's coffee. Uh, no, the point of this is that God does not care about the smell of the meat. It's symbolic language. Uh, the burnt offerings of the Old Testament represented the sacrificer's total surrender and submission to God. Uh, what pleases God is the heart. The sacrifice represents the heart. Like the wallet reveals the heart, the sacrifice reveals the heart. And that's what God cares about. That's what pleases him. Not the smell of burnt meat, uh, but the heart that is loving and sacrificially responding to him in obedience. 1 Samuel 15, 22, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of the rams. It's the willingness and the obedience in making the sacrifice that pleases God. And since we thankfully find ourselves after the coming of Christ, my job no longer is to physically, literally sacrifice animals. No, those were temporary. Those were types. They pointed forward to the one true sacrifice to come. Well, now that sacrifice has come. Jesus was offered up once for all. No more animal sacrifices for the Christian. But that doesn't mean no more sacrifices for the Christian. Romans 12.1, brothers and sisters, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Well, here we see Paul taking uh, that same language, talking about giving as a sacrifice, pleasing and acceptable to God. And so, again, one of the main and primary and most practical ways that we worship God is by giving. Right? We still tend to think of worship as music, right? right? I, I don't intentionally, I don't call Andy, we don't call him the worship leader because it's confusing. He's the music leader. This whole thing that we're doing here right now included the prayer, included it's all worship, including the giving. And so as I was working on this yesterday, I actually got a little bit convicted um, because we're always a little bit short on time because I'm always a lot of bit long on wind. Um, and so one of the things I've unthinkingly been doing to mitigate uh, that is to just quickly run through the announcements while the ushers are taking up the offering. Well, maybe that's not such a good idea. Andy, you're playing during the offering uh, this time. I'm not going to do it today. Um, maybe I'll jump up afterwards and do that because the giving is part of our responsive worship to the Lord. Again, for, for the members, for those who are part of this church, it's not this, hey, visitors, come give us your money kind of thing. No, this is one of the ways that we together corporately as a church demonstrate our love for the church and worship God is by giving uh, generously and willingly of our finances uh, as we seek first uh, the kingdom. Giving is part of worship. We're giving as a response uh, to what God has done uh, for us and what God has given to us which again, by the way, is everything. I know that I have a tendency to think that as long as I give at least 10% to the church, uh, well, the rest of it's mine, right? To do what I want with it, right? Well, no, I need to be actively reminding myself that none of it's mine. It's all his. And he has been very gracious to me to allow me to steward a small part of what is his. And by the way, listen, go read the parable of the talents. Uh, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 tells me that God takes very seriously our stewardship of what is his as the third guy fails uh, to properly use what was entrusted to him and finds himself cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's all his. Right? We are merely stewards. And so one of the ways that we worship him is by stewarding well what he has entrusted to us. And we do that in large part by giving. And in so doing, we honor and we glorify and we worship God. The creator, God of the universe, is well pleased when insignificant little we give our insignificant little money. 
It's neat. You can please God uh, with your giving. God, who is everything, will tell us who are nothing, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I remember how good, I mentioned this the other day, and I was talking about it in Scotland. Remember how good it is to get words of affirmation from people that you look up to and respect? Right, when my brother, my brother-in-law, my dad, or, or, or Pastor Ed, or Pastor Mike, when I get words of affirmation from them, because these are older men that I respect and look up to, and, and wonder, when I get words of affirmation, it just feels, oh, God, I feel affirmed. It's so good to be affirmed by these older godly guys that I look up to. This is God himself affirming and encouraging his people. That's better than anything. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's from God himself to us. That's, that's what we want. You know how we crave? There's those people that you crave that affirmation from. Let's crave this affirmation. Right? I want to honor and please him with all that I do, including my money. And then he says, enter into the joy. Not your joy, my joy. Right? Enter into my joy. Joy, that's what Philippians is about, thus, in part, based upon what we do with our money. Money can buy joy, and it buys it by giving it away as we seek first God's kingdom and the good of others as we worship the Lord. But this is hard for us. I know that uh, some of us are not particularly wealthy. Some of us are struggling just to pay the bills. How does giving work in that situation? Well, it's just a longer conversation uh, that I'd love to go into, but because um, I love you, I'm not going to submit you to that. Uh, but we must at least start with our final point. We give knowing that God will provide. Look at verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's it. And there's God promises to provide. God cares for his children. I mean, we know this is not a promise of health and wealth. This is not a promise that God will give us everything that we want. But it is a promise that God takes care of those who are his. It might not always be the way that we want or up to the standard of comfort that our culture has said that we must have to be happy. But we have to remember that we're living for something different than the world is. We're living not for here, but there. Not for now, but then. And since we are living for then, seeking first his kingdom, laying up treasure in heaven, we give sacrificially. And that can be scary. This is a hard lesson to learn, which makes this verse such a gift. Right? Paul knows that this is hard. Paul is the consummate comforter, always encouraging. And that's what he's doing with verse 19. My God, personal, not just the God, but my God. I am his and he is mine. He will supply every need of yours. And catch this. This is subtle, but catch this. Not out of his riches. Like as a wealthy person, they give you a gift. They take a little bit. Now they have less and they give you part of that. It doesn't say out of his riches. It says according to his riches. And that's different. And that's, that's better. This means that the gift is in proportion to God's riches. And how much is that? How big is it? Infinitely big. Because it's everything. He has infinite riches because he owns the universe. And we've already seen that it is his very nature to be lavishly generous. Guys, the cross just makes that so clear as he gives his very self in the giving of his very son. That's the measure. That's the proportion. That's what Paul is referencing in Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. Everything that is needed to bring about his good purposes. Again, not always your purposes, but his good purposes, which are making us like his son, Jesus Christ. I, could, I was writing this. I could hear Mr. Charles singing in the background. Uh, God will take care of you. I wish we had a recording of that. I wish I could hear 90-year-old Mr. Charles still belting that song. It's such a simple but profound truth. God cares. And his care is always an active care. He provides for those whom are his, and he proves that to you at the cross. We do not serve a miserly, stingy God. Second Peter 1.3 says his divine power has granted to us all things 
that pertain to life and godliness. So those three verses, he will supply every need. He will with him graciously give us all things. He has granted to us all things in Christ. So trust him and give. He supplies in accordance to his riches so that we can confidently give in accordance with his riches. Acts 20, 35, and I'll be done. You cannot do a sermon on giving without mentioning Acts 20, 35. So we'll close with this. Paul writes, saying bye to the Ephesian elders. He's going to die. He knows he's going to die. He's never going to see them again. And so one of the last things he leaves them with is this. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you actually believe that? I really like receiving stuff. I really do. Let me be completely honest. It's great. Do we really believe that giving is more blessed than receiving? We've got to keep in mind that God is always out for the good of his children. Remember, keep in mind that his commandments are not burdensome. Thus, his call to give, then, cannot be burdensome because he knows that he is good for you. Right? When I'm being a good parent, everything that I command, every rule, is for the good of my kids. God is a perfect heavenly father. So everything he commands is for the good of his children. Uh, he knows that giving brings blessing. And it is the very nature of the God that we serve to give. So church followers of that God, use your money well. Share in the troubles of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do it by giving. Uh, give for their good. Give to worship God. God. Give knowing that God will take care of you. Money can buy joy as we use it, as God has designed it to love and to serve others and so glorify him. That's what you were designed for. So give and be glad. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. Thank you for your sustaining grace. Thank you that you have been so abundantly good and kind and generous to every single uh, one of us. Uh, the thing that we should all have is hell. Father, you have not given that to any of us yet. So you have been kind to every single one of us. And for those who are in Christ, Father, you have been eternally and infinitely kind in rescuing us from that which we chose and that which we deserved uh, by sending your son, Jesus Christ, to take our place. Father, help us, please. We are caught and trapped in a culture that is so obsessed with money. And Father, we are so much more than we think obsessed with money. Father, we so demand comfort and ease and, and things to go well. Father, change us. Change our hearts and our minds. Help us to see our money not as what can bring us security, but as what you have entrusted to us and given to us to serve you and to Bless uh, those around us that you have brought um, into our spheres of influence. Father, just entirely change my heart and my mind uh, when it comes to my money. And I pray that you would do that for my family and that you would do that for my church family. Uh, Father, that we would see money as the good gift that it is from you, that you have entrusted to us to steward well for your glory uh, and, and not for our own. So, Father, help us, we pray. Father, use your words, uh, not mine. Uh, I pray that Christ would be clear I pray that you would encourage us and give us great affection and love uh, for the one who was rich and yet made himself poor um, so that we could be rich. Father, motivate us with the gospel and with your grace. And we pray that you would make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen.